Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Empty Frame Studios. Lance, how are you? Couldn't be better. It's a wonderful day outside. It is. It's a, it's a really nice spring day. The, the snow is melting. You can smell the spring in the air, but you know what? We could only appreciate that for a little bit. We had to come right in and start the day off nestled here in our Crawl Space studio. And talking about our guest and his new podcast, and of course our guest is Chris Duet, and he was on an older episode of Crawl Space called Writing with Killers that you can see in our feed. And uh, so this is the second time we're interviewing him, and his new podcast is called Criminal Perspective, Lance. And he does that with this gentleman named Andrew Dodge. So head over to truecrimeauctionhouse.com and check out what Andrew Dodge does. It's all sorts of true crime memorabilia. It's super interesting. And and them together on this podcast is incredibly fascinating. It makes a good team. So check out this show, Criminal Perspective. There are links in the show notes. And if you don't follow Chris Duet on Twitter, follow him. He's a Twitter hero. We don't know how he does it, but he always manages to kill Twitter on a daily basis. And sign up for their Patreon. They're actually really trying to funnel their listeners to Patreon. So check it out, patreon.com slash criminal perspective. And Lance. Yes. Tonight, as you know, we are driving ourselves over to Nashua, New Hampshire. And so if you're listening to this on Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, you can meet us tonight from 6 to 8 p.m. in Nashua, New Hampshire at the Riverwalk Cafe, Lance. This is a panel on forensic science. And yes, there will be professionals there, not just us. We're just going to see what they want to talk to us about. And we'll field some questions, and it'll be a good time. It'll hopefully be a very informative time. I'm a little bit uh, nervous about the whole thing because I don't want to feel like I'm out of my league. But, hey, maybe there are <laughs> other people who are forensic scientists who are feel nervous that we're going to talk about podcasts, and they don't know what <laughs> podcasting is. So Maybe. And it's the Riverwalk Cafe at 35 Railroad Square in Nashua, New Hampshire. So the other people on this panel are, uh, let me just read you their titles. They're much more impressive than Podcaster Lance. Special Agent Department of Justice, FBI, that's Mark Hasbaka. And Dr. Elizabeth Karagosian, Forensic MD, Southern New Hampshire Medical Center Emergency Services. I'm sure her daily events are very similar to what we do here. Probably like high stress like us. Probably. Probably not as high stress, but yeah. she could relate to um, to that a little bit, I think. And there's going to be two other gentlemen, Detective Sergeants, Nashua Police Department, Criminal Investigation Unit. That's Patrick Hannon and Robert Powers, Lance. So we will be right in our wheelhouse, really. Smack dab in the middle of these people, and they're just going to be like... Uh, Wondering what they're doing, probably as much as, as we are, Lance. It's going to be a lot of fun. So either way, it's going to be fun. I'm still trying to figure out how we got invited to this. <laughs> <laughs> so this really kicks off our panel season, Lance, and uh, we are going to CrimeCon in June, and you can come join us and get 10% off a standard badge when you use promo code CRAWLSPACE19 at checkout on CrimeCon.com's website. Every time we go to CrimeCon, we interact with all of the listeners and the people who are passionate about true crime. And if you're considering going, do yourself a favor, save the 10%. CrawlSpace19 at checkout at CrimeCon.com. If you're going anyway, you're going to pay for the standard badge. Give yourself some uh, some percentages off there. And we're doing three live podcasts down there, Lance. We're doing a Missing More Amari. We're, of course, doing a Crawl Space. And we're going to do an Empty Frames. Going to try to get Turbo from the U.K. to Skype on in. That'll be interesting. But this Crawl Space show, Lance, is really shaping up to be very Brianna Maitland-centric. Finally. We've been chatting with everyone involved with Brianna's disappearance from 
Greg Overacker, the private detective, to Bruce Maitland, her father. And we really want to put the pedal to the metal on raising more awareness for Brianna's disappearance and supporting Bruce Maitland's nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing. We are on the board. He is the founder and the chairperson of the board. And it's an organization that will provide resources to families when law enforcement has run out of resources and families still want closure with their loved one's disappearance. And these resources will go towards uh, hiring private detectives or anything that is worthy to bring answers to the families. It's a really good organization, and Bruce is really passionate about it. It's a noble cause. Check it out at investigationsforthemissing.com. And we may be joined by Bruce down at CrimeCon, and uh, he's working on getting a booth, I think, and we may have him on our live panel discussion for Crawl Space, which would be uh, pretty amazing. And if you can't meet us tonight in Nashua, you can't come to New Orleans in June. We have an alternative. Maybe you could go to ASOC in Albany in April, April 15th and 16th. We're going to be there doing a panel with Mike Morford and John Lord. But if you can't get to Albany in April, you could potentially meet us in Chicago in July. We are literally going on tour i feel like we're the rolling stones (laughs) it's pretty much that way so you can find links to all these events in the show notes or if you want to go to all of them that's a thing too that's the grand slam and of course check out the entire crawl space archive on stitcher premium and get a free month with code frames we love stitcher premium okay thank you very much for listening everybody follow us on twitter at crawl space pod we're also on facebook and instagram we got a new facebook discussion group check that out and check out chris duet and his new podcast called criminal perspective thanks for listening Welcome back to Crawl Space, Chris Duet. How are you today, Chris? Doing good. How are you guys? We're doing very well. We are here nestled comfortably in our Crawl Space studios in Wormtown, Massachusetts. You are in Florida, correct? Yeah, that is correct. How is it? How is it down there in Florida? Um, sunny and beautiful as always. Uh, stop it. Very good. It's uh, <laughs> 17 not, degrees. Not snowy. That's how it is. <laughs> 17 degrees Fahrenheit here, but it does not keep the worm from rearing its beautiful head. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you were on uh, one of our favorite episodes of Crawl Space of all time. It was called Writing with Killers, and you have been, I think, for lack of a better term, uh, pen pals with uh, a, an impressive number of serial killers. Yeah. Um, not for some time, but um, yeah, for, for a good while I was. Uh, correspondence, I guess, is a better way to, to put it. But yeah. And since that episode, we have spoken to you off the air and we have tried to get you to do your own podcast because you just have so many interesting stories and you've done so many interesting things in the world of this particular genre and you finally have decided to to put one out there for the masses to consume yeah um it, it was actually something i i really na- never gave much thought to and then uh after having the experience of being on on crawl space um I kind of thought about it a little bit and, uh, I got a hold of somebody, um, that I've known for about 10 years that I actually met through corresponding with murderers, which is my co-host Andrew Dodge. Um, and he's, he's been 
contacting murderers this whole time. He never stopped. And uh, we've we've spoken on and off, but I got a hold of him and I, I said, hey, uh, how would you feel about doing a podcast with me? Um, and we can interview these murders uh, that we know. And he thought it was a great idea. He had just started to do his own podcast with his uh, business, which is truecrimeauctionhouse.com. Um, and, uh, so we decided to team up and do our own podcast and we're doing it. Awesome. And the podcast is called criminal perspective, correct? Yep. That's correct. Yeah. And you're already, uh, dominating on Twitter. It seems, um, we, we talk frequently here in the offices, how good you are at Twitter. You do (laughs) own Twitter. Yeah, you really do. (laughs) You really, uh, yeah. What's your secret? What you got any secrets or what? Uh, no secrets. Um, I like Twitter. <laughs> um, it's I, I just enjoy interacting with like-minded people, and it, it's a place that I feel that I've been able to find a lot of like-minded people, and everybody's pretty supportive of of each other's interest in crime, and and so I really I really enjoy being on there and interacting with people, and um, and I'm pretty much an open book as a person, so um, I, I just I, I I really the the that social media platform just resonates with me well and, and suits my personality. So, and I think that will lead pretty well into success for your podcast on Patreon, because it's sort of an exclusive version of what you do on Twitter. Uh, you can do at least in text on Patreon, which is where your podcast is currently, uh, being shown. Right. So with Twitter, I'd like to, I like to share things that, that I find interesting within the crime world and um, things that I've learned over the years and, and, you know, discuss things with people. And uh, that was, that was part of taking it to the the podcast format. Um, And Andrew and I felt that we had some really great content. And uh, so we just, we decided to put that on Patreon and make that available to people who choose to subscribe and and they can listen to some some very exclusive content, um, stuff that I I don't think is comparable in the in the true crime podcast world. Um, that's not to put anybody down or anything like that. It's just as as far as content goes. I I, I mean I I don't know what all is out there, but I think we're doing something fairly original in that regard um, as, as to what's out right now. Um, I would agree. So, yeah. 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 So that's, that's really what we're doing right now is we're focusing on the exclusive content to our Patreon subscribers next month. Um, we're going to be rolling out some, some free content to Apple, which is more, uh, more of an easygoing format. I, I think we're still going to do some interviews and everything, but I, I think the, the really heavy content is is going to be on Patreon for the subscribers, and we're going to continue that. Okay, so it sounds like a good plan. So you're going to sort of funnel your listeners all to Patreon. The the most uh, premier uh, exclusive, uh, the the good stuff is is going on your yeah. uh, your Patreon page. So I think that's a good strategy um, with your style. And when you said that your show is is different and unlike anything else, let's be clear here. You're, what you're talking about is you and your friend Andrew Dodge who have relationships with murderers who are now catching up with these people, uh, talking with them on the phone. 
uh, in some cases, that people you had previous relationships with. I know your friend Andrew Dodge had known Phil Jablonski for, I think, about a decade. He had shared phone calls with him, I think he said in the first episode. And you had shared some letters with him, at least. So that is right. incredible, incredibly original, just to... Just to follow up on that, I don't think that is out there anywhere else. Yeah, well, you just, you said that it was um, original in the world of the podcasting format, but I don't think that this is out there in any format, in any sense of media. I mean, you'd have to talk about, like, the Bundy tapes well, or something well, like that. Well, yeah. The thing is, is, like, we have two regular guys who have ingratiated themselves with serial killers, and... We're not talking about like a Frost Nixon type thing. It's not a it's not a, a seasoned reporter from the Washington Post going in for the hard hitting interview. It's like how people regular people talk. And I think that is what makes it most educational and sort of darkly entertaining as well. Right. We we wanted to catch them in in a, make them we wanted to have them comfortable and in their natural element and acting and responding naturally and have a casual conversation so they can really who they are would naturally come out and they're not putting anything on for the camera. And, you know, there's no, there's no agenda there. And we try to keep it like that as much as possible. Um, so in that sense, and Andrew and I aren't experts. We don't claim to be, we've been doing this for a long time. We're very well read on the subject, but I, I think w- Really what we're trying to get across is we're trying to extract as much information as possible for the people who, like us, um, are interested and want that information to factor into their own thinking and thoughts in regards to the criminals and the crimes or any potential conclusions they may make uh, to that stuff as well. Okay, so let me uh, let me start at the top here with with a, ge- a pretty general question, like what, like why are you guys interested in talking with these murderers? Um, I can't really speak for Andrew. I think Andrew, it's it's a morbid fascination. Um, with me, it's um, as I've said on the last episode, it's a learning experience. It's um, it's the experience itself that, that I'm trying to gain. Um, it's really, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to express. Do you think that it somehow makes you a more complete person to hear the other end of the spectrum? I do. I, when I was younger, I would relate myself to them somewhat because I was, I was a troublemaker and, uh, you see people these days on social media and things like that who, who are into Columbine and, and all that shit. And I, I wondered how much I had in common with them and whatnot. And when I actually started talking to them and realized that I am absolutely nothing like them and I am not a bad person, though I, I may have thought I was in a sense. Um, yeah, it gives you, it gives you a, a, a wider range of, perspective on yourself on them on uh sociology and all that in general yeah so it seems to me like you kind of 
um, picture your life potentially going down a path uh, of violence, uh, potentially, but now getting close to people is in a, in a sense and speaking with some people who have gone to uh, those lengths in criminal behavior, you're, you're looking at one path that you could have that could have been your fate, but instead you're validating um, yourself as a good person. Right. I, I don't think it. I don't think it, it was really a, in a sense of validation. I think at first it was more of I had to realize that I was a good person and that I was not a bad person. When when you talk to legitimately, I it's so hard to call criminals and whatnot bad people um, because they're not all the same. But when you talk to you know, let's just say generally bad people or people who've done bad things and you realize you are not on that level at all. And, and, and that's what I had to realize is that I had a consciousness and, and I wasn't like them and I couldn't do anything as horrible as they've done. And, uh, that really helped me find myself and the better part of myself that I thought that I didn't have. And I, I talking to people that really don't have that makes you, makes you see that part of yourself that you do have. And that, you know, I, I, I've become, I've become a much better person in that regard and, and, and have learned quite a bit uh, about myself in that regard. Now on the flip side of that, are you concerned that there would be anybody listening who would be motivated when they hear these individuals who are criminals and, and murderers speak someone who might have some sort of, maybe urge to commit a crime of that, of that caliber. Are you concerned that that would, that that information out there is a little too dangerous? Um, potentially, but that information is going to be out there with or without me. Uh, it saturates the news. It has for quite some time. I don't feel that I'm making anything better or worse in that regard. I, I love that answer because you just said it saturates the news and you don't know what angle you're getting, especially now when you read or watch anything on the news. You don't know where they're coming from, what their ulterior motive is. But we do know between you and Andrew what your ulterior motive is, and that is to right. is to inform and to satisfy a curiosity. And to be honest, right. it kind of reminds me of the Mindhunter uh, show and project, because really what you're doing is assembling interviews with serial killers um, but like you said, it's different. It's not investigators interviewing them. It's people who they feel a little bit more comfortable with and you're interviewing them. And this is valuable information for the entire field of psychology, not just true crime in entertainment or infotainment. I think you deserve a Nobel Prize for podcasting <laughs> in the true crime Can we give genre. you the, the Crawl Space Nobel Peace Prize? For podcasting I'll take it with honor. Okay, it's, it's yours. The, it's the crowning achievement of my life. Thank you. You can get it on Zazzle for ten percent off using <laughs> using code Crawlspace. <laughs> so, uh, your first episode, you spoke with Phil Jablonski, and uh, yeah. he he killed five people, I believe. Yeah, and uh, he is in prison, and he's uh, in his seventies at this point. He's seventy three, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. This was a great interview, and if you don't mind, we'd love to play a couple of clips. Absolutely. So, in your mind, 
what do you think it was that made you kill? Do you think it was an inability to control yourself from compulsive thoughts, or did something happen before the murders that caused you an increased amount of stress or a trigger or some type of anger? No. Oh, no, no. I just enjoyed it. First time I killed my first uh, prostitute, I picked up on a freeway. It was just enjoyable. I did that because it was enjoyable. It was, uh, I, it was like comp- uh, compulsive for a while. That when I killed my first wife, it was uh, almost like it was planned out. I told her where I was sodomizing one time. If I was her husband, she left me, I'd kill her for any reason. And uh, like a couple of years later, I killed her. Why did you mutilate her um, so badly? So that was all post mortem. She wasn't alive when any of that happened. No, 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 no. How often do you think about uh, sex and violence and murder and all that intermingled with each other? Is it all the time? And how, how long has it been like that? Oh, let's see. I think of it all, not daily, but uh, very often in here. And uh, I, I started thinking about violence when I was like 15 years old. When I, I used to choke my a little, my both my sisters out when I was raping them, and my other lovers and all that. Did you ever think that you'd get away with any of these murders, or did you not care, or uh, how, how did that go? Uh, for you? No. I, I knew I wasn't going to get away with murders. I knew I was going to, I was going to get caught sooner or later. I really didn't care <laughs> at, at that point, you know. Right. How did you select the victims? What made you choose the victims that you chose? Uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really. The only one I, I selected, well, you could say it was like the, well, my first wife always wanted to kill a Kill one of my wives. Fanny was like, like it was uh, I, uh, I needed a woman to practice on before I killed my wife and, and my and my mother-in-law. So she was an easy target. And uh, then uh, one in Utah was a convenient get done. And one in one in Texas was an easy killer. It was, I didn't select, it just like fell into my lap. I didn't select anything, really. How did you feel right before a murder? Were you excited? Were you angry? What was going, what, what, what were you feeling? I, I didn't feel anything. It was just like, uh, like I was shooting a, a, a dog or an animal. I didn't feel anything. There was no feelings at all. And how did you feel right after you committed it? Uh, I didn't feel anything. <laughs> I had no feelings at all. There is there is no sense of no sense of release, no um, no sense of enjoyment. No, no, no. There's uh, no no sense of anything. It's just like okay, you're dead. That was it. One of our listeners wanted to know if you could go back and do things over. Uh, what would you do differently? I'd go back and do anything over. I wouldn't do anything different. No, I wouldn't do anything different.
No. I wouldn't I would change anything. So you don't have any remorse? I don't, no, I don't have any remorse. What I found incredible was when you guys asked him if he had any regrets about his crimes. And he was like, nah. He was like, nah, it was inevitable. Like, I was going to get caught at some point. Like, he didn't even say, um, well, I wish I didn't get caught that soon. He'd go, he'd go out and do the same thing again. Unbelievable. I would, my jaw fucking hit the floor, Chris. Yeah, to, to hear what he did, yeah. I told you before that it was hard for me to listen to it. It's it's he's a would you say that this is monsters level stuff? Oh, absolutely. This Phil is he's terrible in every every sense of the word. Uh, Andrew knows Phil really well. He's he, he's actually had visits with him in San Quentin um, State Prison, uh, locked in a cage with him for several hours. And he's he's done this a couple times and um Phil is exactly how he portrays himself to be in that interview. He is no different. The question that you were referring to is, is if we, we asked him if he had any regrets, that was actually a question from a listener. We like to take questions from people on Twitter using the hashtag criminal perspective. That's and... how you're so good at, at, at Twitter. What the heck? <laughs> what you, we need to hire you as a social media consultant. <laughs> well, we wanted we understand that people they they want to get close to these people but they don't want to get close to them so we're kind of providing that for them and we want to try and keep this interactive so that was a question from a listener and it was a great question and uh yeah F- phil is phil is a monster he is 100% a monster he he's just horrible and every sense imagine, imaginable there he he belongs nowhere else but exactly where he is well said hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I'm going to ask a boring question. Between yourself and Andrew and the limited time that you have speaking with criminals calling from prison because they only get a certain amount of time on the phone, you're in one time zone, Andrew's in another time zone. How do you even handle the scheduling with all of this? It is a pain in the ass, but, um, yeah, Andrew is in, uh, close to Seattle, Washington. I'm in central Florida. So, um, there's a, a pretty big time difference. Um, and then on top of that, with the interviews, we have to work well with the inmate interviews, at least we have to work on the inmates time. They can only get phone at a certain amount of time. They can only be on the phone for a certain amount of time and things like that. So, it's a pain in the ass and it takes a ton of coordination. Um, but it's essential to get the content that we want and deliver it to the listeners. 
Got a second boring question. You mentioned that Andrew spent hours locked in a cage with Jablonski. How does somebody who is not a journalist or a member of the media arrange for something like that? It's just a, a, a visit. You get on an inmate's visiting list and you can go visit them. And San Quentin death row inmates are permitted contact visits if um, they deem them fit from a security standpoint to do so. I believe Andrew was the last person to have a contact visit with Phil after his visit, somebody brought up, um, to whoever does classification for security, uh, that Phil attacked his mother during a visit in the eighties and they took away his contact visits. And now he's on, you know, the phone interviews or, or I'm sorry, phone visits through glass now. So Andrew was the last person that'll be able to have a, a contact visit with Phil. Wow. So let me, let me just get yeah, this right. Yeah, let's get the timeline straight. Yeah, let me just get straight. this right real quick. <laughs> so uh, so uh, Phil Jablonski's mom visited him in 1980 or in that time frame, and he attacked her during a visit. Uh, your friend Andrew, long after 1980, uh, visited Phil Jablonski in person, had the same type of meeting that he had with his mother, and then after that is when they realized he attacked his mom in 1980s or in 1980? He- Yep. What? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, so he's lucky he didn't get attacked, I'd say. I yeah, I mean, you never know. Uh, you you got to is a- Andrew and I we never forget who we're dealing with and uh, uh yeah, that's I don't know if that was some sort of oversight and I mean, he shouldn't be around people at all, so yeah, he uh, has a lot of pen pals I, I gathered from your um, your interview, and he attacked at least one of them? Uh, he, he attacked two of them, actually. Oh, my God. Um, when he was, yeah, when he was in prison for murdering his, uh, his common-law wife, um, he struck up a, a pen pal relationship with a woman, and when he was released, she came to visit him to help him. Uh, they, they met through a pen pal thing through her church. Um, and she came to genuinely help him. And he was going to kill her and even told her that. And he ended up attacking her and sexually assaulting her and attempting to kill her. But she didn't die. And she left. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That was when he was in prison for, for rape, I believe. Later, when he was in prison for killing his first wife, he got married to a pen pal um, that he met through correspondence. When he was released and he went on his spree of murders, um, he murdered her and her mother. Yeah, and I think at one point in the episode, you got you you mentioned that you believe he might be fantasizing about uh, hurting these pen pals, and that's probably why he has so many. Like you, I think you said up to a hundred pen pals at, at one time. Yeah, he he keeps close to. Um, I, I believe it's around ninety or a hundred worldwide. Um, yeah, I think that's that's part of uh, his his sadistic fantasies is having these pen pals and and having the thought of multiple people that he can fantasize with to do whatever he wants with, and it doesn't get stale because he has ninety or a hundred to, to choose from. You know, what is it that you have learned? From your conversations with him, is there anything that stands out that you can then translate to a sane person's behavior? Is there is there anything that you can take from him? Yeah. Um, with Phil, 
if, if you listen to him talk and he he doesn't he doesn't let the filter loose he sounds like a sweet old man and and he can turn it on and off um in his crimes i i think we mentioned uh, in the first part of the episode that he was after he had murdered several people he was stopped at a truck stop um after he went to pull a gun on a woman and he dropped the gun and fumbled with it and got in his car and left. The police pulled him over. They questioned him about it. He said that he got out of his car. The gun fell from his vehicle. It was an honest mistake. The officer made him secure it in his trunk. So he, you know, he didn't come off as anything other than a normal person to a trained police officer. Um, it just goes to show the pathology of him, how, um, how adept he is at compartmentalization, how he can turn it on and off and uh, seem seemingly normal one second and just be an absolute beast on earth for, you know, the next second. It's, it's crazy. He switches it on and off at will. And, and it's scary that people can do that so well. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about a couple of the killings that, that he did and, uh, some of them were bunched. There was three of them that were, I think, took place in the in the course of two days, where he um, killed a random woman, and then he said he told you guys that it was practice for the next day when he was going to kill his estranged wife and her mother. Yeah, he was released from prison um, for conditions of his his parole. He couldn't go near his wife. She wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, he was living, I believe in a, in a hotel or a halfway house or something and was attending a college, taking an automotive course. He, he murdered one of his, his classmates, as he said in the interview in, in preparation to kill his wife. He then went to his wife's house, um, murdered her and her mother. All of these murders were grotesque, completely just ghastly and brutal murdered his wife and, and her mother and hit the road in Utah, murdered another woman in a random attack. And after that, he police linked all of them together. He was incredibly disorganized and sloppy. They caught him. He was extradited back to California where he received the death penalty. Do you see any similar precursors in the behavior of these criminals when you correspond with them? Is there anything that's a uh, red flag or sets your radar off. I mean, I I'm, I'm not, I don't have any supernatural intuitions. Um, I like to think that I'm fairly good at reading people, but when we're talking about psychopaths, they're better at manipulating you than you are at reading them. So you got to, you got to, that's why we try to get the information and take the facts of the case and everything and piece it all together to get a real picture of them uh, because you can't take their word for it. And you can't, you can't just take one piece of the puzzle. You need the whole puzzle. So we're trying to give listeners the whole puzzle. Incredible. Great. Yeah. Very well done. Um, and, uh, your second episode, you spoke to a friend of Eileen Warnos, Don Botkins. Yeah, so Dawn grew up with Eileen. They knew each other when they were around the age of 13. They're from the same neighborhood. Um, Eileen had an incredibly rough life, 
and she didn't have any other friends. She had no one there for her. She was kicked out of her house after her grandmother died. Dawn took care of her. Dawn let her come into her house, shower, be warm, uh, gave her food. And uh, Dawn always, she always saw Eileen as her friend. She even told us, I, I could never look at her as a serial killer. Though Dawn knew very well that's what she was. She, she said, I, I, I could only see her as my friend Eileen from when they were kids. Um, so, yeah, it was incredible talking to Dawn. She had so many. She, she knew Eileen literally up until her death. She actually went and identified Eileen's body after her execution and, and took her ashes and all her possessions. And, you know, so having someone that, that is essentially as close as you can get to interviewing Eileen Warnos today. So it was, it was incredible talking to her. Well, Eileen's story is slightly different than most serial killers' story because she operated in a lot of rage and, and she had a lot of vengeance in her because of the abuse that men did to her. And was that discussed at all with with Dawn? Did, was there any sort of justification uh, that Dawn maybe tried to impart? Um, very little. Um, we did discuss that. Don Don is very very open about discussing everything in regards to Eileen and her opinions and and uh, so we did talk about that. And Don does think that the the first victim, Richard Mallory, did try to attack Eileen. But Don also gives the information that Eileen was drinking a lot. She was drunk. She killed these men to rob them. And she did it in cold blood. And Dawn is very upfront about that. And uh, Eileen Warnos's case seems to generate a lot of sympathy from people. And it's more so than others. But take Philip Jablonski, for example. Philip Jablonski had a pretty shitty upbringing, too. He was... He, he had an abusive father. He was molested by somebody. Um, and he started to show signs of deviant behavior, which were never checked. And so, yeah, he's a monster, but you have to feel bad for him in some regard because there's some stuff that happened to him that shouldn't happen to anybody. So in a sense, you got to feel bad. But but no one ever talks about poor Phil Jablonski, but you hear about poor Eileen Warnos quite a bit. So we we wanted to kind of point that out in the episode that that Eileen Warnos is is not a. Uh, a rare case and and it's okay to feel bad when something bad happens to somebody regardless of what they've done a bad thing to a person is a bad thing to a person how do you deal with the bad things that these people have done when you hear them just on the surface level like how do you and andrew process hearing somebody violate another person in such brutal ways um andrew and i are we're pretty used to it at this point and we can we can comb through it methodically and approach it from that and and not be personally invested in it anymore. Um, we understand that some of these criminals, because because Andrew and I do know them, this is not a blind interview. That you know some of the stuff we say might elicit somewhat of a reaction from us. Um, you might hear Andrew say sometimes, "Wow, that's wild," this and that, because that's the reaction. That they're expecting and we know that and, and so in keeping with you know keeping them uh not happy but complacent 
with conversing with us, you kind of have to humor him a little. Um, none of it is shocking to us, though. We've we've learned to we've learned to be very methodical with this stuff and uh, not not consume it on a personal level. What kind of feedback have you gotten uh, so far from your show? Excellent feedback. Nothing negative, which is fantastic and more than we can really ask for. Um, you know, opinions are, are valuable to us. So we, we want to hear as much feedback as possible. And fortunately, there's been no negative feedback yet, which is, which is wonderful. And, and Andrew and I are ecstatic about that. And we're so appreciative of everybody and uh, all the kind things they've had to say. I just want to emphasize that your show is on Patreon, so therefore people donate. You have patrons who donate, and it's hard to create an environment of negativity when you're donating 10% of the Patreon fee to victim rights groups. Right. That's something that Andrew and I feel are important. We don't – we're not – trying to, you know, force that as a selling point or anything like that. We just feel that in, in discussing these subjects of crime and, you know, in in a sense it's taking and, and Andrew and I felt it necessary to, to try and give back. And, uh, we've, we saw the opportunity, I'm sorry, the opportunity to do that, um, by donating a portion of the subscription money to um, groups and causes for victim advocacy. I I can't imagine us doing that without that being part of it. Yeah. Um, Now, what will you, because inevitably you will get some uh, negative comments maybe when it goes to uh, Apple podcasts, but um, Mm -hmm. so people will, will, wonder why you're giving them a platform and i guess my question is uh and and trust me i i understand the value of this and i think probably most of the people listening do too but inevitably someone will stumble onto this and wonder why you're giving uh these kind of people a platform so what do you tell them i don't know that i have to tell them anything they're entitled to their opinion and if they feel that way they cannot listen to the show or they can tell all their, all their friends how, how much, um, how much we suck or whatever. They don't agree with us. That's totally fine. Uh, we don't expect everybody to agree with us or, or back us. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that we care to defend ourselves to anybody. The third episode you were talking to us about is uh, the Chicago Ripper. Very interesting story. Do you mind uh, just going into that a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, So the Chicago Ripper case was a case in the early 80s in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, it involved four men, Robin Gecht, Andrew Kokorales, Tommy Kokorales, and Edward Spritzer. Essentially what happened was women were being murdered and mutilated in the DuPage and Cook County areas. And um, it was really, really horrible mutilation. Um, the, these women were being tortured and beaten um, while they're alive. Their, their left breasts were amputated anti-mortem while they were alive. There was 
horrible inflictions, uh, um, just terrible tortures, knives, beatings, um, really bad stuff. Eventually, a woman who survived this led the police to Robin Gett. They caught all four of the suspects. Three of them were charged with multiple murders. Uh, they all confessed, uh, gave a story of satanic rituals and all of this was part of that. And this was all led by Robin Gett and, um, Robin Gett never confessed to anything. Robin Gett ended up being convicted of, I believe, attempted murder on the uh, assault of a sex worker. Um, the other men were convicted through physical evidence and their confessions and whatnot of these other murders. Um, one of them during the confession confessed to up to 18 murders. I think they got them on five, I believe. Um, so we spoke with Robin Gett for episode three, who was the alleged leader of the Chicago Ripper crew. And, uh, Basically, Gek's position is is always been that he's innocent and there is uh, no physical evidence against him. And he he sets the record straight on a lot of things. If you've researched this case online, you'll find a lot of inconsistent information, uh, a lot of media reports. This case was very sensationalized. This was the beginning of the, the satanic panic uh, media storm. And he tries to set a lot of information straight. But he also has his agenda that he's innocent. So we really look at the case objectively in episode three and and really try to find the position of Robin Gett in all of this, uh, being that he was a subject of the the episode. Wow. How was he to talk to? Uh, he was interesting. He was he was not as I expected. Andrew has a has a relationship with Robin Gett. Uh, he's he's talked to him before that was my very first time talking to him uh robin actually asked andrew after the interview if i was mad at him because i guess he thought i was being a bit short but i i, I was just you know conducting a, a normal interview um trying not to um trying to be objective and uh but robin is a seems to be a pretty emotional guy. And, um, he was really interesting to talk to. He was a lot more, uh, well-spoken than I thought he would be. And, uh, he was a lot more wordy than I thought he would be because over the years, um, Robin Gecht is one of those guys you don't, you don't hear a lot about. And, and I guess he doesn't talk to many people and I've never heard an interview like that from him on a, on a, you know, a, a open media source, I guess I, I couldn't call it. He was concerned that you were mad at him. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was concern, but I think I, he definitely had an idea that maybe I I was unhappy with him for some reason, which I had no idea why he would think that. I, I didn't attack him in the interview, or you know, Andrew and I never sandbag anybody we keep a great rapport with these people and if you listen to the interviews we're actually very friendly with them and we we maintain that rapport so um not sure why but yeah he thought that that i was uh i, I was i don't know that i i felt a little ill towards him for some reason but i don't know i was actually uh gonna ask if you feel a little ill towards me during this interview 
I can't stand you. I, I, only Lance can ask me questions from here on out. I knew it. I knew it. See, <laughs> just write, Tim, write down your questions and I'll ask him. <laughs> so uh, your fourth episode, who, who did you talk to in that one? The fourth one is Tony Montana, which we are conducting that interview this Sunday. We've scheduled it twice and uh, it's, it's fallen through. Um, but we're, we're, we spoke to him last night and we're going to do it this Sunday and try and get the episode out a few hours after the interview. Um, so I'm real excited about that one. Tony Montana is actually not in prison. He's not uh, a convicted felon from behind bars. This is a man that's out free in the open. Andrew's actually gone to his apartment and visited with him. He was a member of the Chicago outfit. Um, and he worked with Tony Spilatro in Las Vegas for when they were building that racket up. Um, the, the film Casino is, of course, about how that all went down. But he, he was around, I believe he was questioned after Spilatro was murdered. And he has a lot of interesting insight into that, that historical aspect of, of Vegas, um, that, that dark underworld element. Yeah, that old mafia, those old mafia ties and everything. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that one. As I said, we've 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 come very close to it twice, and it's fallen through a couple times. It just wasn't a convenient time to conduct the interview, so we've rescheduled, and we're hoping to get that done and get that out this Sunday. Your friend Andrew sounds like he likes to fly pretty close to the sun. Is he like a thrill <laughs> seeker? Does he do like uh, love roller coasters or skydiving or something? No, it's he's actually a pretty boring guy. He likes to <laughs> smoke weed and <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never I've never uh, heard a more boring description of a human being. <laughs> People get this conception that you know there's. <laughs> we may be like that, but we're, we're two extremely boring people. So. Wow. T tell us about uh true crime auction house.com. You said he runs that. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's Andrew's business. Um, Andrew sells oddities as well as, uh, artifacts and relics and things related to true crime and criminals. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as murder bilia. Uh, he's been doing this for several years and, um, this is his his main reason of contact with with a lot of these inmates, and uh, that's it's something that he does. Now you've gone through a few people that seem like they're pretty frightening individuals. Who's the scariest person that you've come across so far in the podcast uh, business? So, in other than Tim five, and I, <laughs> in, in episode five, we're. Uh, we're having a man who is convicted of, I believe, 11 or 12 murders, confessed to 38. Um, this is somebody Andrew has been dealing with, and uh, Andrew's actually working on a, on a project about this person, and this person is cooperating with him. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty high-profile case and one of the more significant murders that's been caught in quite some time. Uh, he's very legitimate. Um, we spoke to him the other night and, uh, out of 10 years of talking to murderers, this guy gave me chills right off the bat. I mean, just scary. And, uh, there's a lot of things about him, just knowing about him. 
that are fucking terrifying. And then talking to him, he completely solidified those thoughts of terrors and validated them 100%. He was just incredibly scary. I imagine that that must take a lot for you to walk away from an interview and say, I just got the chills after all of the people that you communicated with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, but, uh, you know, you, you'll hear about professionals that do this stuff that run into that person. That's like, man, that person made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And, and this is a very, very dangerous, um, very scary person. And, uh, it, I mean, it, it was known. And then after talking to, I, I mean, after, right after the, the interview ended, I, I walked out of the room and gave my wife that look of, holy shit. And she, she gave me that look of, Oh, what happened? What happened? So, uh, yeah, the, uh, episode five is, is it's definitely, <laughs> it's, it's going to be worth listening to. Now, some people might be wondering why, or if they missed the name, you can't say the name of the person right now, right? No. Um, so at first, how Andrew and I wanted to conduct this was we wanted to let everybody know who we're interviewing and then they can ask the questions um, using the hashtag on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And uh, Andrew and I, you know, with restricted time, we can pick out some of those questions and ask them. However, after talking to a couple inmates, they suggested that that's not a great idea because the prison could essentially shut down the interview by fucking with the inmate or fucking with their phone time or whatever the case. So to preserve the interviews um, and to keep our schedules and everything, um, it was, it was more feasible to release details of the person's crimes and whatnot beforehand and give people a general idea of who they are. And, and and that still gives the audience some opportunity to ask some more general questions. And then once the interview comes out, we announce who it is. So we don't keep it a mystery just up until the interview is done. And once we have the interview done, uh, then people will know who the criminal is on that episode. Right. Okay. So some of them you have to take that precaution and others you can put out the hashtag and, uh, and ask for, for some questions. Right. A, a lot of the times we will um, give people a general idea of their crimes and whatnot. So they can ask, um, you know, that type of criminal, some questions they may have as, as with episode five, we, we haven't, we, we can't take uh, question requests. I mean, this is, this is an extremely high profile um, offender right now. And, and he's still working his way through the court systems on several murder charges. So um, this one, uh, we kind of have to conduct the interviews ourselves. And then um, once they're out of the way, uh, we're going to let everybody know who it is. And um, when the episode is released and it's, it's going to be a pretty big one. Episode five. Episode yeah, five. episode five. So the hashtag is Criminal Perspective. The show is called Criminal Perspective, and uh, its main landing spot is on Patreon at patreon.com slash criminal perspective. And I love the logo. When are we going to see that as a new tattoo? That's uh, coming. Yeah, you, you got some you got some room on your face. <laughs> Next time we talk, I'll have the criminal perspective logo. We'll, we'll trade. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll do Andrew and I will do a cross face logo. You guys can do a criminal perspective logo. Done. Beautiful. Done. Friendship tattoos. 
Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.